Welcome to Going Deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and I'm very excited to be with you today. It's March 8th, 2021, about a year after the COVID-19 pandemic kind of made us all in our own little houses. Uh, vaccinations are on their way and things are moving along, but we're still doing these interviews remotely. So I want to give a big shout out to Greenfield Community TV for doing this with us. Today, I'm sitting with Ash Hartwell. I work with Ash in the local League of Women Voters Racial Justice Task Force, and we are getting to know each other. And I am sure I know that Ash has an amazing life full of stories. And so I wanted to hear a lot of those stories and I thought I would share them on this, on this uh, Going Deeper interview. And to start, I wanted to read um, from the UMass page for Ash's bio because what he wrote there was just so beautiful. It starts, I grew up in Hawaii and was a surf lover until banished to a New England college where skiing had to take the place of surfing. But skiing was expensive and I had to work to make it through college. So I began to teach skiing. I found that teaching others to learn was as much fun as the sport itself. That has led to a lifelong passion to understand how people learn and to support the process of learning in various cultures and contexts. Living and working in Ethiopia, Uganda, Lesotho, Botswana, and Egypt for extended periods, I've grown to believe in a deep, innate human love and capacity for learning and playing, which is not inevitably deadened as youth fades into adulthood. I hold that every child and potentially every adult is a genius. My work seeks to support individual and community learning, which I believe to be the process of transformation that leads to greater capacity and opportunity to participate in society. Learning is connected to our personal meaning and to our relationships with others. I love that. I just think that is fantastic. Um, so I want to welcome Ash, and we will be hearing a lot about his work and his life and all of these beautiful gifts that he's been giving his whole life. So welcome. Glad you're here. Well, thanks, Marcy. I'm so pleased to be here, and, and thank you for, you know, helping me share some stories. And, yeah. you know, I've lived for something like 80 years. It gets hard to count at a certain point. So, you know, that's a long time to experience things. And so I've had the joy of experiencing things in many places. And we can talk about a few of those today. But um, you've really told my core life story. Yeah, well, you told it because it's <laughs> well, your what words. What do I have to say? <laughs> but, uh, oh, but well, I, trust me, I, I'll get you to say some more stuff. <laughs> but uh, 
Anyway, thanks so much for that. And yeah. for all the audience, um, I'm so happy to be able to share this with Marcy's questions. And on this program, it's really a, it's really an honor and a pleasure right. to do that. So, so, so let's get started. Um, I love to ask people when I interview them to reflect back on their early life, their childhood and their growing up and ask like, what informed you? What, what kind of put you on the path that you're on today? And that really informed your work and your, your living abroad and all of your, your spiritual life, all of those things. Can you speak a little bit about your early life? And I know it was in Hawaii, so why don't we start there? Okay, well, it's a tough question, you know, um, for anyone to ask themselves, what is it that informed the way I, I feel, what I believe, and so forth? And, and growing up in Hawaii, our neighbors were on one side Japanese and uh, Indian and Chinese and Haole. Haole is the Hawaiian word for white folk. And, um, and my family was third generational in Hawaii. My great-grandfather had gone out there as an actual legal advisor to the monarchy before it was overthrown. And um, so we have lots of roots there. But apart from that, I have a really lovely um, relationship with Hawaii. It's beauty, it's natural beauty, but also it's people. They're so diverse. There's so many cultures. And we somehow get along. <laughs> we get along pretty well, actually, in Hawaii. Uh, there's one other place in the world I know which is so diverse and so um, harmonious, and that's in Mauritius. So I grew up with that deep sense of, you know, different, different religions, Shinto and Buddhist and Hindu and Christian and Catholic and Mormon, and they were all there. And so, um, and, and we didn't fight about that. <laughs> So and, and what about your what about in your family? What was what was going on internally? Did you uh, in your in your family life? Yeah, well, my father was a um, my my father was a a heart doctor, and he worked a lot with um, with with patients. Interesting enough, the second and third generation of the Japanese who had come to the island originally to work in the cane fields as labor. Um, as they, they were able to move up, as it were, in the social, in the social uh, system, and um, as they grew up, they also grew taller. <laughs> each, each generation was two inches taller than the, the one before, and that had everything to do with diet and livelihood. And he worked a lot with Japanese, particularly, who had heart issues, and he did a lot of research about how it was that heart problems grew as... Um, as, as uh, people change their diet and lifestyle. Um, anyway, I also, in my family, um, they, they let me do, they let me be pretty free. And I was very free as growing up. And I, I joined something called the Waikiki Surf Club very early and began to really spend a lot of time in the water. And by the time I was uh, an adolescent, I was, I was surfing all the time. And, actually getting involved in making surfboards and so on. So wow. but, um, my, yeah, anyway, that, that was partly my growing up uh, was, 
was a lot of fun, actually, I should say. I have a lot of gratitude to my parents and, and also to my, <laughs> my mentors. One of my, one of my mentors was a Japanese fisherman who was the wife of somebody who helped with our home. And um, he took me out fishing very early. And uh, he, wow. I have a picture that I'd like to share, but I don't have it at hand. And I'm lying next to one of the fish he caught and the fish is longer than I am. We could, we could share something about my love of the islands and so forth. I, I even now in New England, I play something called slacky which is a Hawaiian guitar. And I, 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 a little while ago, I made a little video just for friends and family um, that showed some of the pictures of places that I have been in and, and some of the music. So we could play a little bit of that. Just, just to give it a That's one of the places we live. Wow. And this is you on the guitar. I'm playing this uh, music, yeah. Not professionally, I'm playing it for an <laughs> What island is this? This is on Oahu. And this is on the windward side of Oahu, near an area called Kaneohe. And it's actually where my mother's ashes were scattered mm. because she was a volunteer working um, to introduce palm trees of many places in the world into that garden. It was a public mm. garden. Yeah. So that's another view of where we grew up. So, Felipe, that's enough. I think we can move on. I have to say, uh, this past week, the temperature's been around below <laughs> 20 degrees. And some mornings when I walk the dog, it's like with wind chill below zero degrees. So yeah. I'm lusting after these photos. <laughs> wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice to walk on that beach? <laughs> it sounds, I mean, the way you describe going to college at uh, Dartmouth and, you know, transitioning over to being a skier, there has to be some torturous like letting go of that beauty and that's that i mean it's a skiing is great but that relationship to the water as a surfer and all of that it, it feels like there was some loss there i can't tell you how much i suffered actually the first year at college in fact i um at, at, at the christmas break i got together with some friends in california so i gotta go back and we, we drove across the country in, a sh in three days, <laughs> three and a half days. Uh, I, I just, I was so bereft. Um, yeah. And I had already started skiing, but it's not the same. I want to show you a couple of surf pictures, just to show you, because the surfing was huge in my, in my life, in my development. And uh, Philippe, if we, could, if we could show a couple of those pictures. So these are two places I surfed a lot at. And I have to say, what, for me, um, surfing was not only technically a challenge, um, but it was a spiritual experience. These waves, I, I don't know if you can put yourself in here, but these are big, big waves. And, and, yeah. and we don't control them, they control you. 
and you just are with them. And it's such an experience to be a part of this, this natural force, sure. um, to recognize that it's not what you do so much, it's, it's how you work together with a wave. And um, that over on the left is a real good friend of mine, Kimo Hollinger, who we surfed a lot together. Um, and on the right was my favorite place called Sunset Beach. And uh, it was before it was too crowded because this was in the late 50s and it was yeah. before Bud Brown's, uh, you know, movies brought everybody from California out to Hawaii. Oh, and, it got right. and and we were out there, you know, on days of 15 foot surf with only two or three people. And all of us were just working with each other. And it, so th this was hugely formative in my um, kind of, I would say a spiritual connection to the earth. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Just a, a sense of awe and wonder at, at, at what we have on this planet, if we can yeah. hold it. Yeah. But also so, I can imagine it's uh, the humility of knowing that you're not in control. You know, the humility that being humble in that moment with the surf of, of like it's a it's a dance it's a relationship between you and and what's going on with the water and the energy of the surf is is that that word, that word is so appropriate humility you you're at the mercy of these forces really yeah yeah and and, yeah. and you recognize your place here is is not to not to dominate not to control but to but to just experience and so and, and, Ash, I. I wanted to talk about this a little later, but since we're talking about this kind of stuff, <laughs> I want to bring in your Baha'i faith. Um, uh -huh. Was that something you grew up with? No, no, I never heard about the Baha'i faith. And that's okay. another story, but I, I'll tell it. It, it, was, it was when I was, um, after college, I was really drawn to Africa, actually. And I went into the Peace Corps right after it got started and went to Ethiopia. And I was sent to a very remote area in the southwest of Ethiopia called Gori in Alubabor province. And um, I, I, I became close friends with a young Ethiopian teacher. Um, and he had been six months, um, when he was in the state studying, he had spent six months with a family in Connecticut. <laughs> they had shared with him that they were Baha'is and they, and they had readings and things and, and he had gotten some books and he, he, he was interested, but he, <clears throat> he didn't become a Baha'i and, and he, but he brought these out and we started reading them, not having any idea of whether there was a world community or anything else. And I was just really attracted by, by the, what we read and talked about. We, we read and talked about a lot of things, but one of them was this idea that, the very fundamental concept that we are all in this together. We are all, humanity is one. And the other kind of radical idea is that all the religions are one too. They just have different cultural expressions and times in history that they emerge. Mm. If we believe that, you know, there's one creator, then there's obviously um, no reason to think that religions are irreconcilably distant from each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we talked a lot about such things, and it was kind of appropriate growing up in Hawaii and then being in New England and then being in this very 
remote and um, um, culturally very radically different culture and experience to think of um, the oneness of humankind. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a that was a a very profound experience for me. Um, and feeling that the the kids that I was teaching were from really difficult. They they walked they walked miles to come to the school, and they were very motivated. And they were and they were bright and they were capable. And and to realize that in this really remote area of Ethiopia, that you know that there's this, this oneness of humankind. Everybody wants to learn and to grow and to realize their potential. Mm-hmm. And we had five South Sudanese guys who were from the um, New Air group. And the New Airs average about six and a half feet. And they're very, very black. And they're mm-hmm. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. In fact, the tallest of the five students who came, one of them was almost seven feet. And wow. they were outstanding students. They were just so eager to learn. And they wanted to go back and help their country. And they, they took me with them on a, on a trip we made about 40 miles by, by, um, by mule and by an old Land Rover. And that turned over going down the escarpment <laughs> and into their area. And um, which was at that time near Gambella, and um, and 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 seeing their oh gosh their fortitude their dignity their their capacity uh, really really affected me deeply. Yeah, yeah. So that was the Peace Corps, and then you came back college or this was after college and then when when did you start living uh like you've spent over 30 years living in africa right so so i took a break i took a break from ethiopia and i I got an invitation by one of the people who actually started the peace corps um and uh uh, harris wofford um and they were starting a project in Washington, D.C. in the black schools um, to develop a curriculum based on the experience of the kids and the, and the neighborhoods and the environment. And uh, they were looking for people to help in this curriculum project who would also be teachers. So I became a teacher and a curriculum developer in uh, Cardozo High School in inner city D.C. And um, I worked on that for two years, and then uh, we started an Upward Bound program, one of the earliest ones, um, because the Cardoza High School was um, more like a prison than a school. It treated kids very badly. It didn't respect them. And they, uh, just an idea of a graduating class of almost 600, there were only three who went on to further education. It's just outrageous. And, And so the Upward Bound program was saying, you know, it's not rocket science. It's just a way to do this. It's very different. And uh, so I, I was an associate director of that, um, connected with the University of Maryland for three years. Yeah. And then uh, what, like, what brought you to spend long periods of time in these different countries in Africa? Part of it was, part of it was having to do with teaching and learning. Um, 
I was appalled at the curriculum that the Ethiopian government, which has never been a colony, it's an independent country, but nonetheless, it was using European curriculum. In this remote area, what did this have to do with kids' lives except to escape from this area and actually to teach them that it was that they that they had no life there they should go somewhere else ideally to europe and i thought this was colonialism ideally ideally to europe where they would be very badly mistreated as blacks right (laughs) yes by the way the ethiopians um, are very very proud people Um, so they also cherish their own history i was a i was actually assigned to teach ethiopian history um, and so I had, <laughs> I had to really work at that. And one of the things I learned from that is all history is about 50% myth and maybe uh, less than 25% fact. <laughs> or well, and depending on certain. whose perspective it's coming from, which is yeah, not who, usually the people's whose perspective. Whose fact you choose, yeah. Right, right. Right. So, um, so I, was, I was really drawn to come back to Africa and to work in the education systems, to try to look at different ways that we could um, provide a learning environment that would make sense to the identity of, of people and, and to their potential and, and, and not just be a colonial artifact. So I got a job, um, um, I was offered a job after I, I did a a master's at Howard University while I was working in inner city DC and then went on to do a PhD at, at University of Massachusetts in international ed, mostly focused on Africa. And um, I was offered a job at Macquarie University in, uh, in, in Uganda um, as, a, as an assistant um, professor and, and that looked really promising. So I got that's what I did. I went back to Uganda. And uh, we arrived, actually, I had gotten married <laughs> and had one child of our own. And then uh, we adopted twins who were biracial. And when they were a year old and ready to go, we, uh, we, we adopted the children at birth. We knew the parents. Um, we, went to, uh, we went to Uganda and as we arrived, the revolution that brought Idi Amin into power began. Right as we, actually, as we got on the plane, and so when wow. we landed in Uganda, we were in a land that was now controlled by the military and Idi Amin. Um, hmm. We stayed there for eight years, and the only thing that finally drove us out was um, another another war that had since um, wow. Idi Amin had, had sent his people into Tanzania to claim part of that territory. That did it. And the Tanzanians came back and, 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 um, and, and basically ran right through the country and, um, and pushed him out and pushed him up into southern Sudan. So um, and during this time, were you working for the U.S. government? Like never. Oh, never. So, okay, USAID. That was much later. That was much later. Okay. So I worked for the University of McCary, and then I, then I was um, asked if I could. We we started a project at the university, 
um, in the field um, with a teacher training college to make it environmentally friendly, to change its curriculum so that people would learn how to grow, preserve, and market crops as a part of their studies. Because mm -hmm. you got the that's and and since yeah. EDA means regime had pretty much cut down all imports of food. People had to learn to, you know, and the country is a breadbasket of, of natural capacity. And so this training college called Namatamba in, <laughs> was quite a success. We worked together with the National Curriculum Center and, and with the mm -hmm. university and the people in the communities and, um, and created a changed curriculum, a changed exams for the teachers. The idea that the teacher is not only a teacher of the children, but somebody who contributes to the community and that the kids are doing and learning things that are of value to the community. And that's a, you know, a foundational principle. And that wow. actually went really well. And so they asked me to come over to the Ministry of Education and work with the Curriculum Center and the Planning Center to, um, to, to, to spread this. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, I see. Yeah. And and that program actually did spread, even under the regime of Amin, <clears throat> um, to 10 other places, partly because they were able to grow crops that helped them feed themselves. These are boarding schools mostly. So. So, yeah. so what, like, what was the life like? The work I'm, I'm hearing <laughs> sounds very fulfilling and fascinating and really challenging. Uh, and challenging yeah yeah but like what was the life like for you and your family you know you and your wife being white and then having these biracial kids and your your their older sister or brother the first child the first child is the older two years older than the twins and mm -hmm. is that a girl oh she's a, a girl yeah okay. <laughs> she's, a <girl. laughs> she's a girl so so then you had these three kids and your wife and you and were you living like in a village setting or in a city well, we started living on the university campus but here's the thing the um we were being paid in um uganda shilling and um the <clears throat> inflation went off the charts and we could only survive by um, um, hardly. <laughs> we and and uh, so actually we got we got a subsidy and a support from outside the country to continue to be there, and um, and then I got offered a job when the the ministry asked me to come over to work in the planning section. UNESCO agreed to support that, so I got a position with UNESCO. Okay working at the ministry. That being said, and we moved from the campus, off campus, to um, to a place called Busiga, which is right on Lake Victoria, or just, just on a little hill above it. <clears throat> and it was really difficult. Every morning we'd have to get up early and go and get water because the pipes and plumbing didn't work. Electricity was off a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> we... <laughs> We, we had um, three people working with us um, who became really part of the family uh, because we all had to work together to survive. Yeah. Um, 
and we grew we grew quite a lot of things to feed ourselves right on the mm -hmm. on the property we had about oh half an acre of land and it was in a it was in a village area yeah yeah wow that sounds really amazing in a way to have that not just be a very isolated experience like my family lived in india for a year and I, you know, I felt very much attached to my experience there, but it was somewhat confined. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, like what that was like year after well, year after year having yeah. that kind of It was, of it was tough. I, I, you know, a lot of commodities that you really needed, you, you had to stand in long lines to try to get them if you could get them at all in, in Uganda. But because we were with the UN, we were able to travel um, using a UN passport easily into Kenya, which is about a four hour drive. Um, and we, we, we made friends with a person in a, a, a shop owner, uh, <clears throat> in Ismaili shop owner in the village of Eldoret in Kenya. And he invited us to stay with him. He had a big place, and uh, and so we'd go about every month on a <laughs> on an expedition um, because we had a long list of people who asked us to get them things. Wow! <laughs> we yeah, had a sure. with a rack, and so we would just load up and come back once a month. <clears throat> yeah. So that was a that was one way that we were able to help others and survive. Sure. Sure. I mean, one of the, you know, you and I are doing some of this racial justice work in Amherst right now, and it's on my mind um, just learning the history of the U.S. And, and what we've been going through here from the very beginning of our country. But I'm wondering what it was like, you know, like what did white supremacy look like in in Africa in those times. I mean, Ethiopia was never a colony. So that's an interesting example of one type of experience being white in that country. Right. Um, and not working for the US meant that you didn't have some protections or privileges, although you probably did through UNESCO or different other. Yeah, um, and whiteness, whiteness mattered in, 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 in Sub-Saharan Africa. You were given uh, space and and uh, probably respect that you didn't always deserve, perhaps. Yeah. But, but um, however, in Uganda under Amin, um, whites had to flee the country. Many did. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> um, first, when I was working with the university, um, actually, I was mentored by a couple of Ugandan um, professors who were uh, Savio Wandera, man just of enormous respect, who later became a vice chancellor, um, a scholar, and a really, and he 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 was a kind of a mentor to me. And then I had colleagues there too. They were I, there were no other um, white people in the in the university after Amin came in, they mostly left. The remains of the white co colonial um, um, regime in Kenya was still the last 
the last vestiges of it were there with, um, with, with white folks who had stayed on in Kenya after the Mau Mau um, re revolution and, the, um, and, 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 and then the, um, um, the takeover of uh, the independence of Kenya and Kenyatta's rule and, and into, um, into, the, <clears throat> into the 70s and 80s that um, there was still some vestige of that and there was some definitely resentment of the white role in Kenya because from a financial and institutional point of view there was still quite a lot of control of Indians and whites of the, um, of the, of the market economy. Mm -hmm. but, um, so we did see that. I, as I said though, I didn't feel any direct hostility to myself or my family. While yeah. I was in Kenya. So when, how old were your kids when you came back to the U.S.? Well, we only came back to the U.S. for a short time. They were nine years old. Then we had gone over when they were two. We had spent almost eight years there and, um, and then came back for a short stay. <laughs> I have a funny story. I thought it was funny anyway. When I came back here, I um, was asked to help out at the Center for International Education, and one of the people who was doing the final work on his doctorate was Zach Matsella. And Zach Matsella was the permanent secretary of education in Lesotho, and he was doing a study on indigenous learning systems. And it turns out that my mentor in Uganda, Asafia Wandera, professor, was had written a book about that and published it. And I had spent quite a lot of time with him. And so wow. I became one of his, Zach Mancilla's advisors. And when he finished his dissertation and he did something very unusual, he cooked a meal for his advisors when they finished his orals. He did a beautiful job. Anyway, he then asked me, would you like to come to Lesotho and work with me? And I said, oh I'd love to. He said, well, okay. And within a month, I had a note from UNESCO that they were appointing me to become um, an education advisor to the Ministry of Education in Lesotho, wow. where we then went and spent five years. Oh, my gosh. That so, is fantastic. That and, is and Zach Matsella, after a few years, went on to become a professor at the university, and then I taught at the university there as well while I was wow. working in the ministry. So it was really quite... Um, exciting yeah that's i love those kind of things how that works out that's amazing that's just, okay. yeah you know, yeah yeah sometimes it's you wonder so, how. so you so you've been back now this last round about 13 years or 12 oh, years even more. over 15 over 15 yeah. i mean i went on from from lesotho then we went on and spent five years in botswana and then I went to Egypt and spent four years there. And then I went to Ghana. And there I came and went back and forth because my kids were going into college and my wife's parents needed help. And so we, I, I, I kind of partial, I, I actually stayed with good friends in, in Ghana when I'd yeah. go. Um, and <clears throat> in all of those countries, we worked on various reforms and and I mean, some wonderful stories. I mean, my favorite is the work I did in Upper Egypt um, to put in, to help get started something called Community Girls Schools. A whole huh. book was 
and written about this called um, Learning for Empowerment. And it, it really speaks about how even in remote rural villages that have been subjugated in Upper Egypt is a bit subjugated by Northern Egypt. Um, we say Upper Egypt is the South because that's where the Nile comes from. So it's oh, Upper interesting. Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I spent a lot of time with communities there under a UNICEF program um, and, uh, and work closely with um, the woman who is the mother of that program called Malik Zalouk, um, who later has become a professor at the American University Cairo. So that wow. was, it was an amazing experience because those, we were able to design really revolutionary, I call them revolutionary learning environments called schools um four kids in these rural villages and they did so well they outperformed the kids in the regular schools considerably although they were wow you know and 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 it spread to um oh, almost a thousand communities so ash how many languages do you speak how many languages i've forgotten is the question <laughs> <laughs> and i joke sometimes that i think i've forgotten more languages than i've learned <laughs> <But> <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I did, I did, I did, <clears throat> I did learn Amharic when I was in Ethiopia, sure. and I learned some Swahili when I was in East Africa, in Uganda. Although Swahili, Luganda was more used than Swahili, but Swahili was the trade language. And then I did learn Sesotho when I was in Lesotho. I had to. I spent a lot of time in the rural areas there, and. Um, and Lesotho and Botswana are both linked to the Soto people. They're both Soto people, so there was a, just a small, it was a dialectical difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It actually confused me. I often spoke Lesotho when I was in Botswana, and they'd say, what? Right. <laughs> and then I went to Egypt, and I really worked hard to learn Arabic, enough so that I could wow. work in the rural areas. Um, and I didn't do too well at that. That was a really tough language. Yeah, yeah. That's so, so impressive. That is just not really. It was yes, it is. I am trying really hard to learn Hindi, and it's not it's not easy. And well, it's just one language. <laughs> you're trying to learn Hindi in Amherst. If you go right. and spend a year in a village, I know you're you will right. learn it very quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, I also then later spent quite a lot of time in Afghanistan, working oh. on a rural women's project. Um, to empower women at a local level um, to do um, to, to learn much about family well-being and health, um, and it was actually to provide the opportunity for women who wished to pass the program to go into midwife training, because wow. under the Taliban and earlier, there were no women in the reproductive services and in, in helping with birth and so forth. Gosh, and the country yeah. realized that for the rural health clinics, they had to do that. And so this program was a support to that, but its other side was empowering women in their community. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I want yeah. to spend a little time um, also just talking about the U.S. and the Amherst stuff that we're both involved in and just your take on where we're at in our country, um, this sort of, you know, big resurgence, although many people know that it's not 
anything new, but this big resurgence of, you know, uh, white supremacy and nationalist kind of horrible hatred and discrimination and violence. Um, and uh, given your perspective of spending so much time outside of this framework or this kind of kind of paradigm of how to how we have grown into being this country, I'm just curious what your yeah. thoughts are in general, and then the work that you're working on in in the local Amherst area. Do do you want to spend a little time talking about that stuff? Well, yeah, that's actually the, yeah. I mean, because what we need to do is come back from Africa and Afghanistan and come back to what's happening right here. Right here. And <laughs> now, my gosh, what and a now. time. Here and yeah. now. Um, first, when we came back, when our, our kids, my kids had to come back before I was able to completely move back because they were going into university when I was in Egypt. Um, but... They, as biracial, they they experienced a lot of racism, a lot of harassment um, in in the Albany area where my wife's parents were, and she had to go and help care for them, and was in a in a public school there, and the the, the twins were, and they they had a hard time. In fact, they they experienced a, a form of trauma, I think, to realize how. Um, uh, how they were viewed and treated, um, and and nobody understood who they were really because they they they, <laughs> they spoke English in a in an accent that nobody had heard, yeah, <laughs> more wow. English kind of, and and their experience didn't relate to kids that they were with, and the white kids shunned them, and so it was really hard and awful. Now, I had known about racism, obviously, when I worked in the inner city in D.C. in the 60s. And actually, one of our advisors was Stokely Carmichael. And I mean, we, we were immersed in that. But I didn't. It was only when I saw it hit our kids and how much they really suffered from this that I began to get a deeper apprehension of, of how systematic and widespread and unrecognized racism is in this country. Yeah. Um, and that led me to when I finally was able to come back to Amherst and work at the University at the Center of International Education, although two thirds of our students are, are, um, are foreign students, many from Zimbabwe and Zambia and Uganda and, and African countries. Um, and they also experienced this, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, and so the experience of Africa, I, I began to feel like there's a very deep responsibility as white people we have to first recognize this and to deal with it. The black, the, the problem of racism is a white man's problem. Yeah. And um, so I couldn't really, you know, and although I was very much involved, well, even when I came here, um, about 75% of my time was going back and forth to countries in Africa, working continually right. things that I'd gotten involved with. But um, more and more, I wanted to do things locally. So I, um, I've, I've become involved with the, um, 
League of Women Voters Racial Justice Group, and also with the um, Inter Interfaith Opportunities Network. Um, this, <clears throat> this sense grows out of my faith of the oneness of humankind and how we have to survive together on this planet as an organic community, or we're not going to survive at all. Um, right. and, and, and also a very felt experience with my own daughters um, and, and, um, right. and coming back. So that's some of the, some yeah. of this. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, um, I mean, it makes sense. And I, I guess what I've been steeping myself in is understanding that not only is it a white person's problem, but the history of the systems, the laws, the institutions that supported this division, bringing, you know, poor whites and, and blacks against each other right. on purpose so that they don't mobilize and, and create some bigger force against the power that, you know, is putting them all down uh, economically and otherwise. Um, so, yeah, it, it is interesting to think about it being a white person's problem, but also like, I, I keep going back to this issue of policy and institutional racism, um, and trying yeah. to change things on that level. Why, why I say, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for saying it's a white man's problem because of whites created the problem, but but it's also because they have the power and the control over the institutions exactly. and the policies. There you go. Yeah. And that said, that ultimately, too, though, <clears throat> I feel like it's very much of a heart-to-heart -heart thing. That, and for a while, I, I worked with my dear mentor and, and, and model person, uh, Ray Elliott, who <laughs> many of those in Amherst will know. And I will just put in a little plug that I interviewed Ray Elliott in, yes. in 2015, I think, 14 or 15, when he was 91 years old. Right. And that's how I first met you, Ash, was through Ray. Yeah. yeah. So we yeah, were on, on establishing the race amity um, effort, which would seek to bring together black and white folks to look at how to establish really caring, loving, and knowledge-based relationships. Um, and and I felt after Ray passed away, I, I didn't want to try to continue this as a white person because it needed to be something that is done collectively. Right. And um, that being said, I still feel that it's, it's hard to, it's really caring about people that make a difference. And the systems also have to have to get changed, but they get changed because people really care, because they see how right. these affect people who you care about, and therefore you want to, you, you want, you've got to work on change. You know, uh, another... I, I, I think there's a lot of confusion in the country and even in the town about issues like reparations, about issues of racial justice, and uh, partly it's still, I think there's not a level of deep awareness of what what we have done as a country and what we need to do as a country. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I uh, yes, I agree a hundred percent. I, um, I'm thinking about another organization. I mean, race amity, citizens for racial amity now, CRAN and race amity day, they're excellent for that sort of reminding us, um, and hopefully getting some mobilization. Another organization that I think is doing an amazing job of bringing people together is the Poor People's Campaign with Dr. Oh, uh, yes. Reverend Barber. Barber. And, Reverend yeah, Barber. and I've been doing some, uh, you know, I've been zooming in on some of those. Every Monday is Moral Mondays, and they've had these special events for different aspects of mobilizing around government, um, you know, different uh, things coming into the Congress, different acts that they're voting on, whatever it might be. But Reverend Barber and his partner, um, the white reverend, the woman who is working with him, the two of them together, and all of these amazing people that they have speak, all are trying to remind us about this kind of thing that you talk about a lot, which is unity and trust. And also to understand that it is, there's a functionality to dividing people who are poor and people you know, who have differences so that the powerful can stay in power and that there is some very strategic uh, reason for all of that and has been over, over time. So I, I really am appreciative of their work. Um, in, yeah. as it, it does seem like, how are we gonna make a change? For me personally, I'm less interested in calling out like, you're a racist, I'm a racist, who's a racist? You know, this individual sense of racism, it There's exists for everyone. You yeah. sent this, I think, to us originally, Sonia Taylor, we're all racists. Right, right. Because we're in this society which itself is racist. It's like the, the air yeah. we breathe, the, the well, water we swim in. That. Let's get over that and deal yeah. with the structures, but <clears throat> you know, there's two two things that I've recently, you know, I've been reading and reading, but <laughs> but the um, Wilkerson's book on caste yeah. is a really important piece of work, and the other one is by um, Sean Rochester on black tax, and both of them are very deep analyses of the systemic issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and that, but it needs to be addressed with a caring and a love and a unity. Ray Elliott used to say, I come into these meetings and my feeling is we've got to have more love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And if we have love, we really would care and we wouldn't allow these systems to continue to, to oppress people and, and right. help people. And uh, so, <clears throat> um, yeah, I think there's still lots of work to be done. Lots. Yeah, yeah, there really is. There's a lot of work to be done. And it feels a little like the more we do, the more we see how much we how have to do more, you know.
One of the Good. one of the things, one perspective is I, I I love to see work that is being done now by African American artists. And Kathleen Anderson introduced me to this wonderful uh, event they have, where about fifteen or more um, nationally known uh, artists are doing various kinds of representations of the issue of racism and 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 yeah. and, and it's it's really lovely work and. That and and also, goodness, how much we should recognize and appreciate music, um, mm. and the and the terrific influence that black music has had, going all the way back to the earliest days and all the way through up to the right. invention of jazz, right? And, uh, and 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 really glory in that, yeah. That's that's absolutely right. Absolutely. So we I also I also get uh, I personally get a lot of um, sort of I don't know support personal support when I see so many wise black people who have a voice now and on every level you know academics and professionals and people in government etc. But also like check out this Kimberly Jones who. Uh, you sent me, and I had seen it already, this amazing video where she does this awesome uh, economic analysis using the, the game Monopoly to yeah. explain what happened to the American right. Blacks. But then I have also found a, um, a YouTube video of her being interviewed by Trevor Noah. And, mm -hmm. you know, he is what he is, but in this interview, it is so interesting to hear them both speak and for her to give her analysis again. Uh, and she, and with another person, just wrote a book for young, like teenage black kids mm -hmm. who have now experienced this police violence in Ferguson and Minneapolis, et cetera, et cetera and how, how to process all that they have gone through. So she just mm -hmm. finished writing this book about that and it's being used as a, a, a resource in the classroom in oh, these cities. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, on so many levels, I feel like music and art and education and, uh, and, and just more dialogue, a lot more mm -hmm. dialogue there that mm -hmm. we're experiencing. However, the other side <laughs> definitely is very strong and very uh, stubbornly digging their heels in and feel well, think, th their pain and their yeah, sense and, of... And I think it's, it's very much a matter of being white means that you don't have to deal with this or you imagine you don't have to deal with it. That you can just not pay attention. You don't have to learn. And, you know, it's... but. Black people have to experience every, possibly every day, but but yeah. others don't. And so, you know, the issue of being silent means complicity, right? And um, and and that's something that I think probably a lot of people still are very uncomfortable about. Right. I mean, people, right? And even even kind of progressive liberal. Absolutely. Democrats. And of course, you know, the whole critique of the white liberal is, you know, right. it's all words. What about action? Yeah.
What about yeah. one of the one of the areas that I just hold very dear is is education, and I'm so pleased that there is an ABC program for Amherst, and there, but a better chance and mm -hmm. supporting the um, BIPOC and the poor and so forth through education is is one of the ways that needs to really be ramped up. Yeah, um, I and, agree. And, and, uh, you know, and on another level, just civic education, not right. related to race, but just how is our how does our government work? What is the background of our government? What is the history of the development of our government? And that alone is something that people don't even get it why it's important to vote, what you know, why it's important to be involved on a local level with government, et cetera, et cetera. And so education about that with young people. We were talking about this recently with in our task force group, uh, mm -hmm. right. how important that is. Yeah. 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 So we Well, this is a great here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is a great conversation. I, I want to just ask, we're going to be winding up soon. Is there anything that we've missed or that you would like to add now that it's coming to a close or? Well, <laughs> I have to say that one of the experiences of being in Amherst is that I really have missed being around a majority, uh, being within a community where the majority is 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 black and african <laughs> i mean yeah. it's very different and the also growing up in hawaii where you know where we were had so much diversity and so forth and so i i would love to see more more diversity in our population and we understand now very clearly that because of high costs of housing, difficulty of getting loans and so forth, that it is a real barrier to um, people who would otherwise like to move here or who may even work here but can't live here. Exactly, um, yeah. And I, I would love to see that, that there's, that is addressed and, and dealt with in the whole dialogue on reparations. That's a and great, a great point. There are ways to do it. And this community has the wealth and the capacity to do it. But let's yeah. see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. We'll keep yeah. fighting the good fight. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing so many stories. I, uh, I love doing these interviews, and I really am grateful for, for you to join me today. And I also really want to thank Philippe and Nick and the folks over at Greenfield Community TV. Uh, they're just doing an amazing job with all of this remote interactive stuff um, during this pandemic and a big shout out to them. So thank you. And uh, I look forward to my seeing you again next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so Take much. care. It was a lot of fun. You make it a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs>
Oh.